Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of Deep Dive, I'm joined by Pyle Aurora and Usha Rahman, two of the editors of the work Feminist Futures of Work, Reimagining Labor in the Digital Economy. Pyle is a digital anthropologist, TEDx speaker, and author of award-winning books, including The Next Billion Users with Harvard Press, a book that she actually came on the deep dive before to discuss. Her expertise lies in user experience in the global South and inclusive design. Several international media outlets have covered her work, including the BBC, The Economist, Quartz, TechCrunch, The Boston Globe, FAZ, The Nation, and CBC. Forbes named her the next billion champion and the right kind of person to reform tech. She's contributed to numerous organizations, and she's currently the professor at Erasmus University, academic director in UX and inclusive design at the Erasmus Center for Data Analytics, and co-founder of FemLab, a feminist future of work initiative. My second guest, because yes, there are two, Usha Rahman is a writer and academic based in Hyderabad, where she teaches media studies at the University of Hyderabad. Her core research and teaching interests span the fields of feminist media studies, digital cultures, children in media, and critical studies of science, health, and technology. Apart from her role as a co-editor of volumes, book chapters, and journal authors, she's the author of Writing for the Media from Oxford University Press and has been a columnist for one of India's largest newspapers, The Hindu, and edits a monthly magazine for Teachers Teacher Plus. She's also the co-founder of FemLab, a feminist future of work initiative. So after all of that, that more than warm and worthy bios, I want to welcome both of you to the deep dive. How are you this morning? Morning for me, afternoon and evening for others. So how are you both? I'm good and thank you for having us. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us. And yes, it is evening here. Absolutely. This this show operates on many, many time zones and many, many schedules. And that kind of speaks to the breath and nature of our guests. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about this conversation. I think, Pyle, when I saw you post on Twitter about, because I refuse to call Twitter anything <laughs> but Twitter, first of all. Formerly known as. <laughs> exactly. The, the fact that a fascist lunatic now owns that site <laughs> has not impacted at all my ability to call it what it is, which is Twitter. So, so Pyle, I, I saw you mention the book, I believe on Twitter first, and I knew right away that I wanted to spend time um, with you discussing the work. So you, you're two of the editors on the book. So Pyle, I'm going to start with you. Why this book now? Well, you know, we started as uh, an organization a couple of years ago, FemLab, basically, which was uh, seed funded by IDRC, a Canadian grant agency. And interestingly, it happened, well, interesting is sort of putting it mildly, it happened a few weeks before COVID. And remember, we are anthropologists. We were going into the field in India and Bangladesh and uh, looking at, I mean, the whole gist of the grant was how do low-income women workers and other marginalized groups use 
new digital tools to enable themselves? What are their concerns, lived experiences? And what what can we say then about the future of the digital economy, particularly in the realm of work, right? And, uh, you know, as fate has it, COVID uh, hit us all and in remarkably different ways, but yet also overlapping ways. But uh, the people, as we all now know, uh, felt the most, uh, you know, pressured were people at the margins, right, uh, who were subjected to multiple forms of alienation, oppression, and also a lot of pressure to uh, continue their forms of livelihood when they were moved away from the physical spaces of work. So we really captured those stories and we struggled also as a team because our team was spread across the world as well as internally within India and Bangladesh. And we were trying to do it remotely, safely, and yet engage with people who are very marginalized offline as well as online. And uh, this became a sort of, uh, we were very embedded in this digital culture and we tried to create a sort of a unity within this sort of chaos through a regular blog space, you know, just to capture what were we thinking, what were we feeling, not in terms of the sort of academic jargon kind of thing, but more in terms of, you know, really capturing the moment of who are we? We were getting to know each other as a team, but also our participants. So we, went, we sort of zeroed in on these stories and we started to invite people from, uh, you know, the NGO sector, civic agencies, uh, you know, tech people, programmers. We just started to invite very different voices who were engaged in these areas. And it became a thing. This blog space started to get read by, you know, companies like Web Foundation, Adobe, UNHCR. And we're like, oh, wow, we weren't really expecting that. And so given that culture, we thought, why not take these blogs and actually extend it into actual pieces, which can really capture very diverse voices from outside of academia. Because, you know, two thirds of the book is from very different uh, people from different sectors. So this is really the culmination of a project that started in very difficult situations, right? And we're very happy with it because it, it sort of encapsulates uh, exactly what the book is talking about, which is a sense of resilience, you know, uh, amongst very uh, disparate communities at different points of privilege as well as marginalization, you know, coming together to figure the things out where we haven't collectively and in the form of solidarity, you know. And Usha, I want to give you an opportunity to, to jump in here on, on a different angle, which is, you know, talking about why the book and the mood and the sentiment behind the book, I think is, is critical to set the, the table, so to speak. But I think another interesting angle, and this is going to almost sound very basic, but I think it actually comes gives us an opportunity to kind of bridge into the deeper um, implications of the book, which is, I would love your thoughts on, you know, what is work? Like, you know, I think everyone has an idea in their mind. They hear, they see these terms, they read these terms, and everyone thinks they know what work is until you ask someone like yourself, an expert, you know, particularly when it comes to the work that women do, what that really means. So I want to give you an opportunity to set the table there and, and Tell us what is work. 
Well, thanks for that question. And um, I think we're all still figuring that out, right? So if you ask an economist, an economist would say that work is something that is productive financially or you know results in material gain if you ask a, a feminist economist they will say that there is you know work that is productive there is work that is reproductive so you know which is the work that is done in the home to sustain family to you know including childbearing so how we think about work really depends on where you are and how you're looking at it so through the course of our engagement with uh, women in you know really very different circumstances we found that very often the labor that women do is often not considered work in the economic or financial sense and part of our effort really was to make visible these different forms of work that um, may not result in income addition to a family but certainly sustain the family in different ways and also i guess work is something that drives life so very often we separate work from life and this binary has existed in and has deepened in most developed parts of the world right or in advanced economies whereas in um, emerging economies like india there is a continuum um, of work and life so if you're in an agrarian situation your work begins uh, at sunrise and you may be preparing uh, food at one point but you're also then laying out the grain to dry that is going to later go to the market in the same space so so i think it's very difficult to separate work from life particularly in women's worlds or in women's lives and yeah so work is something that we do and we call it work when it receives payment we don't call it work when it doesn't receive uh, you know financial rewards yeah it's interesting to think about how economists and anthropologists would think about things differently despite there being that intertwining of the realities of those things, particularly um, when it comes to to women's work. So, Pyle, I want to give you a chance to answer the questions, but I'm going to throw in another little caveat there. That one, I'm I'm also known for making fun of the term futurist, right? So, you know, admittedly, I, I do sort of take the piss at that term a little bit, but it's interesting to me that whenever I read about the future of work in the broad sense, you see these titles and, and articles out there. It very rarely looks like the work that you guys have worked as have put together as editors in this book. So it seems like the, you know, the mainstream world that talks about these topics talks about them in a vastly different way than what you have put together. And so I'm curious in your mind, if you really see that the same disconnect I see? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? So, Pyle, I'll let you jump in on that one first. Always a great questions. I love it. So, you know, uh, you call the bullshit on it, which is obviously the politics of, you know, getting the attention of people in this attention-saturated economy. And so, obviously, the future of work is a buzz term, right? And we are subscribing to that so as to hook people into this conversation and then build nuance because the reality of it is that we are so obsessed about the future because it's something that 
we can remove ourselves from the responsibility of the now you know so elon musk is like why bother with climate change now when we can move to mars right so <laughs> let's have some sort of far off you know vision where people can channel their financial and human resources into things which are abstract because with the abstract it is a blank slate you can fail astronomically later but with a promise of solving something in an abstract for the now but uh the reality is the answers we need to have is very much oftentimes even in the past right so it's also happening in parallel right uh, for instance we are talking about like uh, a good point is remote work you know and uh, you know in the book we address that is that it's as if something is new like uh, because of covid and because of these new digital tools we are experiencing remote work hybrid work as a new phenomena right but actually that's been around for decades in terms of people being you know removed in terms of particularly from a feminist angle in a domestic space as actually usha writes also about right so you're relegated to the domestic you're relegated at whether it's artisanal women who are working on bangle making at their homes right and they are doing remote work they're also doing domestic work they're also attending to their children as usha said and cooking as well as working in the same space so for them it's not off they're not off or on it is a very much enmeshed and if you want to learn about what these so called new forms are we need to actually look at the past so we you know we kind of are you know hooking people so as to then get them to understand that what is the future is not just the now it's also the past and it keeps getting reproduced because we refuse to acknowledge that we can learn from the past the so called traditional societies the so called remote societies we feel like we need to in a we as i'm talking about in the west the privileged societies often in the west uh have the solutions and we disseminate it to the rest right kind of logic so yeah there is a pushback that and hence the feminist approach is that there's much to learn from the everyday engagements of laboring and you know in terms of the question before about what is work you know and building on what usha said is that and taking it even further into the data sphere why this is so important a conversation is when we look at women's work and how they've been systematically negated particularly you know because they've been women i mean so it's very much you know the identity of who is doing what and then if you look at the intersectional approach of are they women of color or are women of color in low income resource constrained settings then it you know amplifies their invisibility and you know so when we look in that those terms uh, about this unrecognized devalued or even undervalued or non-valued work that is very much fitting for the data data economy because when we propose this notion of the fem work as a uh, as a pushback against fem tech it's about us saying that look our tech cannot exist without work and what our technologies are is all this non-stop constant data production that we're doing which is capturing our everyday self expressions online and contributing to these multi billion dollar industries right 
And so this all is a cumulative laboring of human society, which is ongoing, iterative, and, you know, very much visceral and embodied. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, that's why it is so fitting for feminist, uh, you know, approaches to be taken to this sort of data economy and to understand how that plays out, particularly when it comes to the notion of work, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I, I you know, I, I jokingly always, you know, I tease the futurist, right? But um, it, it really does annoy me because... Um, <laughs> It annoys and also, to, to be quite honest, it enrages, right? Because when I was reading through the essays in, in the book, as much as we use these terms like invisible, and, and I use them all the time, right? So I'm not saying they shouldn't be used. I'm, I'm actually saying that they make perfect sense. But the fact that they make sense is what's so enraging because all of this is so evident and obvious, you know, before we started recording, you know, we were kind of talking about the falling apart of, of New York and the recent flood. So we're recording this two days after there was like tremendous flooding in New York City, um, particularly in Brooklyn, where I live, though not my part of Brooklyn, um, before folks start like pinging me like, are you OK? You know, I'm fine. But, you know, what struck me and what always strikes me as I was watching the news reports, and these are like now the local news where they're like on the ground, right? There's always that person on the ground holding the microphone. And they're showing these streets are flooded and people's cars are stuck. And most of the traffic trying to get through the, these floodwaters on bicycles are people delivering things, right? It's like Uber Eats, DoorDash, is all these, you know, whatever else is out there. And there's a clearly a digital face, right? If you go on Uber Eats or you go on DoorDash, you're using an app, right? But the, there's a human, like the phone, the food's not getting like transported to your home, right? Like there's a person that's bringing that to you, right? That most of the time people treat like shit, right? So it's frustrating that so much of what makes all of this run still is perceived as invisible because we're using screens when it is actually super visible. So Usha, I want to get to you, soliloquy done, question coming, around, you know, I want to pick up on a couple of points that both of you have made about the geographies. You know, so many of the women featured in the book come from different geographies. They come from different parts of society in terms of what they're working on and the work that they're doing. And also, I think most interestingly or, or additionally interestingly is the fact that what we've already started to talk about, there's that digital piece, you know, it's in the title of the book, but so much of how this manifests is physical, right? It exists in real life. You know, when you, when you wrote so eloquently about women making bangles, you know, something that is home production, but yet has real physical manifestations through pain and limitations to their body, right? So I want to give you an opportunity to share more about how you started to pull together all of those different seemingly unrelated, but yet very related realities of, of shifting geographies, both in the people that you guys spoke to, but also the ways in which this work is getting done. Okay, that's a really complex question. And, uh, As a complex question, yes. show. 
<laughs> yes, and um, requires a complex answer. So first of all, when we talk about geographies, I think it's important to recognize that there are, I mean, geography is not level, right? It, it has plains and troughs and land and water and all of this. And similarly, the women that we spoke to were in really, really disparate contexts. So it may be women who are driving a cab on a ride-hailing service, uh, like Uber or in India, Ola or other women-run taxi services. It may be, as you mentioned, the bangle makers who work in the what is the inner city equivalent of Hyderabad, uh, the old part of the city, which has huge civic problems, you know, improper drainage, no roads to speak of, uh, electricity issues, all kinds of problems that you typically associate with, you know, an emerging economy. And then we have uh, women who are uh, servicing homes uh, through an app, uh, providing salon services in the home. So, and then you have garment factory workers. So, Again, just in terms of the physical constraints or possibilities of these different geographies, they're hugely diverse. And yet, as you said, um, the person who is actually doing the work, providing the service, bringing the food, riding the taxi, is an embodied individual. And in India, there are layers, right, to um, embodiment. So there is religion, there is caste, and like everywhere else, there is class. And all of these things are experienced by the individual and somehow expressed in the interactions that occur between the person who's swiping the screen or clicking on the screen, asking for a service, and the person who shows up to deliver the service. And so it's these interactions that suddenly sort of jump out of the digital and remind both the service provider and the client or customer that after all, all service is essentially human or all products are essentially human. So we write or we have chapters in the book that address what happens when a woman, let's say, of a disadvantaged community or traditionally or conventionally underprivileged class comes into the home of a person of privilege and how there are these nuanced ways in which the interaction is shaped. And then this person is providing that service in a home, um, not in an office. So what sort of rules apply right, to that interaction? How are you going to interact with this person? Are you going to treat her as a service provider who has no caste, class, religion? Or are those things going to operate in the way you speak to her? So. One of our authors, for instance, has talked about the culture of servitude that exists in India. And it exists in multiple, in many other geographies as well. And, you know, in the United States, you talk about race. And uh, in India, we talk about caste almost analogously. And so how do you then, how do these things operate? So clearly the digital has not changed anything. The fact that you may be using a so-called sophisticated means of calling up a service doesn't mean that your attitudes to service or to the person who provides that service has changed. So when we talk about future of work or futures of work, as we call it, we also have to realize that uh, the digital is overlaid on a very complex, uneven, unequal reality where human beings are interacting um, 
you know, ultimately face to face. And you did mention, if I could just mention one last point, you talked about the service, the delivery workers, the food delivery workers, for instance, or like on DoorDash, the people who shop for you and bring your goods to your home. In India, we've had instances of people, of delivery agents being discriminated against on the basis of their religion or their caste. So people refusing to accept food, for instance, that is delivered by somebody they would consider non grata, right? So again, just to re-emphasize the fact that the digital is enmeshed in a very complex social and cultural reality, and one cannot think about futures of work without considering those realities. And there are possibilities, of course, that the digital offers, not to completely deny that, but in order to realize those possibilities, we first have to contend with uh, the realities. Absolutely. And contending with reality is something that the technocrats often have, have trouble doing. You know, they, they hold fast to their, to their ideas. And Pyle, I want to build on, on this and go a, a little bit deeper when we're talking about these sort of shifting geographies and the way in which these spaces interact with each other. Because I want to talk a little bit about safety. And I think often there was this idea that the digital will become this flattening in a sense, that things will be safer because there's going to be some sort of accountability and, and maybe the digital even provides a a somewhat a barrier. So the abuses that we used to see in so-called physical work would disappear into the ether because now we have this digital work, which keeps us all safe, right? It keeps us all at bay, right? And I think it's obvious that that's not the case, right? For the most part, but yet people still hold very fast, like I was saying, to these notions of the tech, the digital as as some sort of panacea, right? Like we are flawed, but the digital and tech are are perfect and they'll solve our problems despite our fallacies and weaknesses as, as human beings. So I wanna I wanna give you an opportunity to kind of talk about that push pull and particularly the safety element of this, right? Because I think there's something there that is often not captured. But through several essays in the book, I think the, the writers and you guys as editors eloquently surfaced. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's funny you mention about this notion that we we seem to give far less uh, credence to human engagement and we undermine it. We talk about the constant chronic human failure and how technology will, you know, basically counter it is this was exactly the speech I experienced at a X prize event some years ago where I was asked to serve as a consultant and capture a report on innovation with these X prize entrepreneurs. And one of the key guys on the board, won't mention whom, but anyway, is said like, finally, you know, here is an app that can be a school within an app because schools have become, have always been a failure and will always be so because human beings just have very little ability to deliver. And so it is, you know, it was a, that the technology finally, an A app 
to it's it sounds like a ring to you know control them all or <laughs> and this sort of rhetoric just keeps coming up it's amazing and people gave a standing ovation and it's you know it's just so appealing a logic but anyway going to the sort of uh, space you know this uh, you're right there's it's not just a safety one is that we can't help but architect abstract space because the digital is very abstract. And for us to inhabit it and make it our home, it actually requires us personalizing it in ways that engage with other people who we think are like us. And we carve spaces that are familiar to us. So it's not a coincidence that we term certain spaces as a home page. What makes it a home? You know, or we, you know, talk about uh, community forums, right? Like, and, and we it evokes certain kinds of uh, spaces already, and certain kinds of practices. Or the cloud, you know, part of it is also very strategic, so it feels like it's somewhere out there, not a material reality, like an actual data center sucking up water and you know polluting the environment. It just seems like, oh, I'm putting my data out there somewhere. You know, so the metaphor is a very powerful way in which we architect spaces online. And also, uh, as Usha brings up, uh, you know, is about the enactments, the social enactments, everyday connections with people shape the kind of spaces of engagement. And a similar practice happens online because, look, every new space, so-called, is not developed. It only gets really developed when people engage with it and creates a sort of a culture. So there's something called a Reddit culture, where there's a Twitter culture, Instagram culture. And what is that culture? And uh, since we're in a room of anthropologists, we know that culture is about context. It's about the community. It's about, you know, everyday practices that shape that culture in a sort of dynamic but relatively stable way. Because there's a sort of a critical point where people start to believe that that is embedded and it is fixed. And so then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're like, oh, well, this is an open space or this is a space which is for right wing people or, you know, it doesn't actually mark. It becomes marked and thereby it reifies it as such. Right. So, I mean, in terms of safety is that indeed we had these assumptions that it would be different forms of human behavior if we are given a novel kind of space. Again, we put emphasis on the digital as something novel, which will change human nature. But actually human nature adapts and shifts any kind of novelty to its very fundamental core, which is that if you're not given checks and balances and a certain kind of accountability, uh, it could hit the basis of our human nature, right? And so we do need to watch over each other and also watch, you know, in a sort of surveillance of care. So in fact, time and again, we have witnessed these complete anonymous sites becoming like, for example, in Brazil, the secret uh, app became a porn site practically in revenge porn site to be more specific because you know, disproportionately, there are more male than female users in the planet. And uh, so it's not really represented, as well as the fact that when you don't have accountability, then you can do acts which tend to, you know, hit the basis of human nature. So, you know, there is a notion of visibility 
and, you know, counterproductive acts. And now with the sort of really a, a movement towards encrypted platforms, right, and encrypted space, spaces, particularly in the global south, you know, through a lot of like, in fact, elections, are, as people have argued, are happening on WhatsApp which is behind encrypted platforms. And we don't know what's actually going on. We can't necessarily scrape it. And it's extraordinarily challenging to capture those worlds. And those worlds are very real. They actually have real physical and even like deadly, you know, outcomes on people's very beings, right? Physical beings. So like if in within a WhatsApp group, they decide in India that this is a, uh, this Muslim has eaten, you know, a cow, then they can be lynched, right, uh, in their community because it becomes a fact internally. But it, it, it's it's not in public where people can sort of flag it. And it's not that it doesn't happen in public, but it's moving more and more into these semi-private spheres or semi-public spheres. And so I think this is part of it is that we need to recognize that we do function in communities and communities need some rules and regulations to be civic and be, you know, civic to each other to to have a certain decorum. And when that is lost and when we don't have a diversity of people who are shaping those rules, right, particularly keeping in mind the most marginalized and most vulnerable communities, then we're going to have a set of rules that favor a very small elite group that will make it unsafe for most people in the world. So I think that's the direction I would say could happen if we don't, you know, pay heed to that, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I want to, obviously, you know, we're looking at all of this through a feminist lens, right? I always feel funny saying that because I'm like, isn't that the only lens? Like, are there other lenses, <laughs> right? Like, like, I never hear anybody talking about, I guess the patriarchy lens is the lens that just kind of exists, right? I've got to try to flip that and to, um, to get some some better ideas out here. But putting that aside, you know, kind of keeping that that focus on on the feminist lens, like, you know, as as someone who's male, I, I try to tell women when I talk to friends about this who who might, you know, want to argue, I'm like, you know, men move differently in the world, right? And that doesn't only happen from a physical perspective. That happens from even in digital perspective, right? Like I've seen the sort of vitriol and just hate that is spewed at women almost constantly, you know, online, particularly when they are doing, you know, this type of work, right? Pushing boundaries, no matter what it is, right? And I've also seen that I'm like, there's no way somebody would talk to me like that online, right? Like there's just, it just would never happen. And so that's like one aspect of it. But then there's this other aspect where digital is organizing, right? It is often used by women to organize where they wouldn't be able to physically, right? So one hand giveth, one hand taketh away. Not saying that those are equal exchanges, but I'm always like sort of tough to wade through that paradox. So Usha, I want to get you back in on this. Like, you know, this is talked about in the book. It's been seen before. Like, how do we balance? Not that there should be balance between the hate, but how do we use these tools in a way that changes that relationship? 
So I, I think the word is counter rather than balance, right? So how do you counter the forces that are dark or, you know, that tend to marginalize, that tend to objectify, that tend to reify the divisions and disadvantages that exist in society using the same tools that uh, sometimes exacerbate those problems. And I think that happens almost organically, right? So even in what we call meat space, you do find that the same structures that oppress also stimulate resistance to that op oppression. So I think uh, with digital networks as well, and again, this is documented in some of the chapters in the book, uh, we find that women uh, find safety through uh, communities that are created online. So there is one chapter, for instance, that talks about whisper networks. And, you know, I think the term whisper networks became popular during the hashtag MeToo movement. And while the whisper networks we're talking about aren't only about uh, gender-based or sexual violence, uh, they're also about other forms of violence, about which household in this neighborhood treats um, domestic workers well, which households have potential predators, which households, you know, will skimp on the way they provide meals or holidays or whatever it is. So. So I think these sorts of whisper networks are formed through, and in India, WhatsApp is uh, one of those platforms that has been both uh, negative and positive. Um, but WhatsApp is, is a tool that's used by, I think, everyone who has a, has a smartphone or you know, a phone that has some element of smartness in it. And I think through these WhatsApp networks, women have been able to create communities of care. Pyle talked about these networks of care, uh, surveillance that operates for care rather than for control, right? So you do have uh, women creating these networks, women and people of other marginalized groups creating these networks through um, social media apps. There, there are also mobilizations that start off on the ground in physical spaces that then uh, gain traction online. So another chapter in the book that talks about the right to uh, sit campaign in a town in Kerala in the south of India, which actually, you know, interestingly is, has for the longest time been a socialist state uh, where labor movements were very strong. Yet these labor movements were not sufficiently sensitive to gender issues. And I think you'll find that in many uh, labor unions across the world, which uh, focus so much on class inequity that they really were blind to gender-based inequities. And I think through the sorts of networks that women were able to form first on the ground and then amplify them through uh, media like WhatsApp and other forms of social networking, they were able to gain a sense of solidarity. And now I think, for instance, there is a movement, there is an increasing movement to unionize among platform companies. And you, you're seeing that in the US uh, to a large extent. And it's happening in other parts of the world too. And I think this is forcing uh, states and regulatory agencies to recognize that there is, you know, you can no longer treat humans behind the screen as invisible, that they are working bodies and that they need to uh, be recognized as such. And I think much of this strength comes from these digital networks that have fostered a sense of solidarity. I just wanted to speak to one other thing that Pyle mentioned briefly, and this was about safety. And 
I think we also need to think about safety in terms of forms of violence that are not necessarily sexual violence, but the violence that results from other forms of discrimination, right? So it could be the violence that results from silence very often. And I think those are things that digital networks are allowing people to visibilize, to make heard, that haven't, haven't necessarily been possible in, um, you know, in non-digital spaces strange that we're talking about non-digital and digital spaces yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> absolutely absolutely but I, I think that's a, a really good point you know on my own sort of anecdotal piece to this I, I often think of you know in New York it's you know what I call like nanny central right it's you know well enough off people that they can hire someone to take care of of their kid and I feel very close to this for a couple of reasons, mainly because a lot of those women tend to come from the same community that I come from, meaning that they're West Indian, right? So I I move around the city and I hear these accents, you know, accents that I grew up with of, of women doing this kind of care work, right? For kids who are not their own and you can you can make the argument this harkens back to days of of slavery where, you know, the mammy character, you know, the black woman that would take care of the master's children, right? Again, at the expense of her own. So even in this in this space, I see like this physical work happening, right? You know, they're taking care of these mewling brats and, you know, um, all the rest of it. But yet they are organizing with each other. I go to the library a lot and, and the libraries in New York are filled with nannies right is they all have like play libraries they're just places where they can coalesce so it's like this physical place where they can be and but they're often like on their phones right and i could hear them talking to like relatives right while they sort of like look up at again these brats and and make sure they're not like walking into a wall or something um since most of them tend to be incredibly uncoordinated um so so I, I say this because I see this the way in which the physical and the and the digital sort of are combining themselves for, you know, relief from having to deal with these kids. They find community with one another. They're, you know, I'm not listening on every conversation, but I could hear like the banter, right? <laughs> um so it makes me think about how this is work that's done sometimes at home, sometimes it's happening remote, right? Maybe not the remote that we typically think of, but it's happening in libraries and cafes and coffee shops. And I'm sure New York is not unique in that. I'm just saying that in New York, it tends to be West Indian, right? But in other places, it looks different. So Pyle, I want to give you a chance to come in on this, that work from home that remote work shift, we alluded to it at the top of the show, but I think it deserves a little bit of attention because so much of how work is thought of, particularly in the way we're thinking about it, it seems to happen everywhere all at once, kind of like the movie, right? Everywhere and everything all at once, you know? So, so Paul, I want to get you to in on, on that thought and how we pull these things apart to an extent to show distinction between these realities. Yeah, you know, I think I think it's uh, part of uh, organizing a society where we like to simplify sometimes to the detriment of, you know, those who are the most marginalized. And it enables organizing when you reduce things in very binary terms. Here is a space of work. Here is a space of playing. Here is a place of rest. 
And, you know, that is actually a privileged worldview, uh, you know, because we are able to carve those, shall we say, you know, pure environments. The the And, you know, when I say pure in a sense that we valorize purity as something which is, you know, it's a desired, right? That it would be nice to have uninterrupted, you know, space and time to focus on your work. And that is true. And in fact, that is when we think about leisure, right? Uh, we look at there's uh, for over decades, women and men have over time experienced around equal amounts of leisure because women grab spaces of leisure in between the moments, exactly what you were saying, you know, like when they're doing care work, they squeeze in parts of leisure. But the problem is that they get it interrupted and it is broken down. And so the quality of work or the quality of thinking and doing is far less, uh, you know, compared to someone who has the privilege of an uninterrupted time, right? So there's that in terms of the purity. On the other hand, when we're talking about community and building, uh, you know, the whisper networks, it is uh, so not pure, actually, in a, the be most beautiful of the senses, right? Where it is contaminated with everybody's perspectives and it's chaotic and it's, you know, it's in its true form. And so I think in the end of the day, we need to focus more on what do we want to achieve? And these are pathways through which we are getting into rather than seeing this as, you know, these are the spaces and times within which we are get to be productive and we create value. And then the rest is a vacuum because if you're creating value in those spaces, then what's happening other than that, right? I mean, so I think that is one of the sort of dichotomy thinking that we bring to the table constantly when we think about remote work, because we ask the wrong kinds of questions, right? It's like, you know, how many days should we have, you know, should it be a three-day week Day? Should it be a four-day weekday? I mean, this is a conversation in Europe, right? What's the right weekend and the weekday? Even that construct, right, of I the weekend and the weekday, right, <laughs> is bizarre that this is a this is a you know day of rest where you can can you know connect with the god like this historically that right Sunday. This is a day as if that we are able to contain all of what we want to do in that day. Uh, you know, as if we can predict the futures, predict the uh, everyday realities, and it undermines uh, you know serendipity actually, which can be very productive in itself, right? So, um, yeah, so this is how I actually would, you know, approach that, really. And, you know, when I'm talking to smart people like both of you, I'm always like adding notes to the already notes, right? So there's already things down here and then you say something and I'm like, okay, I gotta get that down. And so I've been doing that a lot. This page is a mess. Um, but, you know, I wanna spend a little bit more time on this leisure piece, right? Because in some ways, well, not fuck that, not in some ways, in most ways, I feel like, you know, women, particularly women from, you know, these communities that we're discussing. And you know what? I don't even make the argument is it's women even more in all different strata, right? I'm going to try and get there. So there's a point coming, right? Women's labor fuels other people's leisure, if that makes sense, right? That like, obviously there's the clear cases, right? If a woman is being a caretaker to other women's kids, that woman now has more time, right? But I also think to 
you know, my my friends that are like professional women, right? I'm, I'm using air quotes for people who can't see me, but maybe they heard from my voice. I kind of did like an air quotey kind of voice thing, right? They're paying for men's leisure, right? Like their husbands or partners or what have you, when they're taking care of the kids or they take them out to the park or they do something with them, that dude's sitting the fucking home doing nothing. Right. Like, so this guy would be like, oh, I had a hard day at the office. Right. It's just like, so did I. Right. In these dynamics where both people are working and they're working in what we call, again, professional or white collar, whatever these terms are that all suck. Right. Like there's a lot of leisure that's built on women's work, whether informal or formal. And so to kind of continue on that road, Usha, I want to like, what am I saying makes sense? I don't know. I don't even know if there's a question in there. <laughs> but is, is the, does the statement or the idea make sense as you guys start to talk through these things? It makes total sense. And, you know, if I could just get a little bit personal for a minute. If we're talking about privileged classes and the work that professional women do from these classes, very often, since the work they do isn't necessary for to run the home, it's also seen as a privilege to work, right? I mean, it's, it's seen as something you choose to do. And therefore, you're going out to work is something you choose to do. So you don't need additional leisure, if you get what I mean. So that's, that's a frame, actually, that I find increasingly in a lot of households in privileged families where the woman works. So it's almost like you have to claw back time for leisure in those communities. So I think there are, the politics of leisure uh, for women exists differently across class groups. So in privileged families where a professional woman worker, you know, also needs to fight for her right to leisure. And sometimes that's a very fraught emotional fight because people don't understand that she needs her time as much as um, anyone else. And so, yeah, so if you're laboring outside the home for your own fulfillment, uh, you also need to labor inside the home so that other people can be fulfilled and other people's leisure can be created. So I think, yes, you know, just to repeat that, you know, there is a politics of leisure that is gendered across class groups. And at the other end of the spectrum, women who actually do not have leisure. I mean, I, I, you know, just to slightly depart from what Pyle was saying that, you know, le leisure is mixed time of, I mean, spaces of leisure are mixed into spaces of work. I think certainly, you know, in order to sustain a joyless or a tedious workday, women and all workers find ways to you know, bring some joy into it. So, you know, you think about the agricultural laborer who sings as uh, she threshes. Now, what do you call that? Do you say that that's leisure mixed into work? I would say that that's not, I, I think we need to think about that a little bit differently from leisure. It is something that helps her continue to work or makes the burden of work a little bit bearable. And I don't think we should confuse that as leisure. So I think um, this notion of leisure, which is time that you have to replenish your internal resources, to do things that are purely joyful, that are not necessarily productive in any material or financial sense. I think that concept of leisure, you know, maybe it's a modern concept and it didn't exist in 
you know, pre-modern societies, or maybe, you know, the frameworks that governed pre-modern societies were different. So, you know, this idea of work and leisure and family time were not as separate as, as they are now. But then your central question of whether women's labor fuels other people's leisure, I think that's, you know, that's certainly true. And I think it exists in different ways and in diff to different ex extents across societies and across geographies. Yeah, but there's a lot one can say about this. Oh, yeah. About the politics of leisure. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. That was one of the central themes for me as a reader, right? Mm -hmm. As I was going through different essays and, and going through the sections of the books and, and of the book, and you guys have it very well organized. It's just, it's like, it made so many things clear while at the same time, again, there was that, like, you get angry reading because you're like, God, why, how are we not thinking about this? And the fact that it is so, like, again, when I watch and, and read mainstream stuff, whether, it, even not even connected to his work, but, you know, we have a terrible mayor here in New York City that I constantly rail against, right? We have a terrible sort of governing structure here. And I see no serious discussion at the highest levels of the sort of ideas that are surfaced here. And it doesn't imply that change has to come from the top, so to speak, right? But we're we're coming off a, a time in New York where we had the UN general sessions were here, you know, Climate Week, Clinton Global Initiative, all this stuff from what I would consider my editorial alone, non-serious actors, right? Like they're serious in the sense that they have money and they're resourced, but their ideas, I find them to be useless, right? One person's opinion, I'm not saying it has to be everybody's opinion, but me, I don't expect answers out of these people, right? So I want to get toward the end, right? Because I'm looking at the time and I promise you guys an hour and we're just there. And I do want to get to the drop, which is the final section of the show. But I, I want to talk about and give you both an opportunity to weigh in on this idea of, of dignity, right? It's weaved through so many stories in the book. And the fact that I'm asking this question last, please no one think that I feel like this is not an important topic. We can actually, in my mind, have done an entire episode just on this notion of dignity, because I feel like it powers so much of the way people think about work generally, but particularly work that is gendered. And the example I'll give here in America, we have this thing called McJobs, right? Like meaning fast food industry, you know, it's used as sort of like a pejorative statement, right? Like, oh, you just always go get a job at McDonald's, right? Like there's that kind of thing implying that the people who work there, the job is meaningless, right? Because it's just a fast food job. And more recently here, um, you know, we've had a lot of labor movements here, um, not as much as we would like, as I would like personally, but labor is kind of on the rise. And we've had recent cases where like UPS workers went, went on strike or almost went on strike. And then they had like a, a pretty good settlement, right? And so when people saw the new salaries for UPS workers, you know, among the, the right wing idiots, there was like outrage. How, why are we paying these people so much money? You're telling me a UPS person is going to get the same money as me? And it was like, that's what this all comes down to, right? Like you think you deserve money because you are whatever credentialed or sitting in an office or doing something so-called skilled but these ups people don't deserve that money 
right? Because they're just driving a truck and carrying packages, right? Like, it's always that guy that sounds like this because it's mostly guys, right? So I say all that to say that there seems underneath all that is this who deserves what and why, which is ultimately, to me, a question of dignity, right? Who deserves to be fairly compensated? Who deserves time off? Who deserves safe working conditions, right? All of those things, right? So I want to give you both an opportunity to talk about the notion of dignity, which I I think is the central issue here in in many cases. There's many issues, but I think that's one of them. So Pyle, I'll let you go first. Usha, you'll go, and then we'll get to the drop and I'll get you out of here. (laughs) So, yeah, I think you bring up one of the key words in uh, thinking this through, which is about the notion of deservingness, right? As if that we need to come up with a framework of deservingness, a sort of a formula of deservingness. We start with the point that there has to be a notion of deservingness, but then let's put our minds together about what is what are the criteria. And that is a complete derailment. So like, how do I assess your value? And, you know, whether it's a performance metrics, you know, whether it's like how many ratings did you get, right? And the algorithm then calculates how much you deserve as a rider or a salon worker, et cetera. And I think we need to really like remove these two and separate these two because we all actually, and this is a sort of feminist angle, right? Everyone deserves to be treated in a humane, dignified way with respect because everyone is contributing. You know, when you are, whether you're a white collar worker, even this division of the so-called white or the blue or whatnot, right? And so I think that's really at the core. Now, you know, again, just uh, getting a little personal here as I bring up in one of the chapters I write in the book is I I had an experience firsthand when I moved to San Francisco and I waitressed for many years uh, in Indian restaurants. And, you know, I come from a middle to, you know, middle to, well, shall we say, upper class family and uh, upper caste. So this notion of like, well, I just uh, assumed it's just a job that I'm doing so I can experience the United States, right? And um, so I put myself, you know, I didn't uh, associate my identity with what I do. However, everybody did associate my identity with what I did, which is basically I was a waitress. And also internally within the, you know, in the restaurant uh, setting is there was a hierarchy of who gets to be respected in very concrete terms, right? So I was working at this Indian restaurant and we would have dinner by the end of the shifts, right? The restaurant would be closed and the ones with the, uh, who were the cooks and would have their dinner at the main table and they would have their own, pl- they could use a restaurant plates, but we had our separate plates. I was put with the Mexican dishwasher, who, by the way, in the hierarchy of things was the lowest. <laughs> so it was a Mexican dishwasher and myself who had to sit on the ground with our own separate plate and we couldn't use a restaurant plate. And this has a huge element of cost which by the way, people tend to think is very ingrained, like you're born into a caste and, you know, and it is, it sticks with you, but it doesn't actually, because I automatically became a lower caste or, you know, person in that setting, disregarding the, my actual caste actually, based on what I was doing. 
So it was considered of less value. So we also, it's not just done to us by the outside. We do it towards each other, you know? So because technically there should have been a sense of solidarity because we all in that larger bracket of devalued laborers, you know, in the restaurant business that uh, tends not to be respected. Uh, And so, you know, I think that's really the crux of it is that we need to re-question why we even ask this notion of deservingness, because we will do whatever it takes to survive. You know, as uh, examples of whether during COVID people lost their jobs and they took on, uh, you know, jobs which were, you know, very dehumanizing, whether it's like uh, in South Africa, they were cleaning, uh, you know, basically crap, you know, on the uh, from the ground and from the sewers. Does that mean that that person, in fact, if anything, I would respect that person even more so because they will do anything to provide for their themselves and their family and their community. And that is something, you know, of high value. So, uh, and yeah, I'll let Usha take it from there. Yeah, thanks, Payal. Yeah, I think, you know, this notion of dignity, I think we need to think about, it's both an issue of perception and an issue of experience. And obviously they interact, right? So if you perceive somebody as not worthy of dignity, then that person will automatically experience a loss of dignity. So. So I think it's uh, both in how we see people and the, the work they do and how people see themselves. And I think this is where our, the principles that we articulate in the book and uh, that we've kind of arrived at through this whole project, what we call the FEM work principles, really come from. This acknowledgement that we need to look at the worker rather than the work. And the moment you recognize the worker as a human being, as somebody who is doing this for a livelihood, for self, whatever it is, whatever the motivations for the work. The work is not the thing that you classify, but the worker is the person that you regard in a particular way. So, of course, FEM work is kind of a convenient acronym, but I think it encapsulates all the principles that we think will provide dignity to the worker and for those who are looking at the worker to recognize that all forms of work contribute to a sustainable world, right? So we're talking about F is for fair, work should be fair, uh, contracts should be fair, equitable, so you know, the conditions of work should be equitable. And this includes recognizing intersectionality, right? So the experience of intersectionality as well as its uh, reality in society. So in India, we might consider caste as uh, one of those intersectional identities that we need to attend to. Everywhere we would consider gender in uh, the West and in certain racialized societies, we would consider race. So is it equitable? Is it mobility enhancing? Does it fix the worker in a role with no room for movement and growth? Or within the limits of that occupation and that society, does it allow for some uh, reasonable amount of mobility? Does it focus on worker identity? And again, you know, this is where intersectionality comes into uh, place. Always for the opportunity to organize. And this is not necessarily anti-management organization, but also organization for care and for community building um, and respect-based. And again, this is core to dignity, right? So do you respect the worker and therefore the work that they do? And finally, knowledge-based. So what opportunities do you give 
people to actualize themselves through the ways that are available to everybody, you know, to uh, whether it is to improve their own understanding of work or to improve their understanding of the work of the world. You know, to what extent can you feed, can you create an environment that is knowledge based and not just in terms of the data that you extract, but also the data that you give back to workers. So I think in some ways, I guess the pursuit for dignified work or giving dignity to the worker who performs any kind of work, I think that would be what really runs through the project. Absolutely. I, I think couldn't have said it better myself, which is why I didn't do this amazing work. Both of you did. Um, the book is fantastic. It's filled with so many provocative and, and really insightful essays and contributions to everybody who took part in it. And there's too many names for me to, to list. So definitely go out and get the book. I want to end the show, obviously, on The Drop. And The Drop is our opportunity to share anything at all with my listeners that we feel that they should check out. So I'll, I'll go first. My drop is not like this is a secret, but I, I went to the Natural History Museum this, this past weekend and um, they have like a, a new science center and a whole bunch of stuff that they've added to this very old and prestigious New York institution. And I'm always amazed when I go there that it never loses its, its sense of wonder even as someone who's been there quite often in my life. The Met is my favorite museum. I'm more of an art guy than like a history guy. But um, nonetheless, I really, really always enjoyed the Natural History Museum. And I think museums are an interesting space around organization and community. And, and now in decolonial movements, we're seeing museums like the British Museum being asked to give their plunder back, which I think is awesome, right? Got to give back them stolen artifacts, you thieves. <laughs> so um, Natural History Museum is, is worth a visit if you come to New York or find an equivalent museum in your in your city. But all museums, should, we should spend more time with them, that leisure piece that we talked about. So that's my drop. So Usha, I'm going to let you go first and then Pyle, you're, you're up. Okay, so um, I'm going to recommend a podcast, if you don't mind, on this podcast. Oh, absolutely. Go for it. It's called The City of Women, and it's produced by a small group of independent women podcasters in uh, Bangalore, India. And it's really about how women negotiate the city on various fronts for work, for leisure, for, you know, in pursuit of anything that they choose to do. It's really short episodes, so should be easy to listen to. And if I could just add one more thing, which is a film that I saw recently, which many of your listeners may already have encountered, called Women Talking. I think it speaks to many of the concerns of feminists. Um, it's a film by Sarah Pauly, Canadian filmmaker, and it's just a bunch of women talking. But it's, it's amazing. Thank you. That is awesome. Pyle, you're up. You're drop. Yeah, so I would recommend, you know, the Swaddle. It's a, basically a channel on uh, Instagram. And it's really interesting because it's a sort of a feminist take on it, it really discusses issues, contemporary issues, but through the lens of entertainment, they use uh, Bollywood clips. Uh, they use, you know, different kinds of entertainment media clips from around the world to situate conversations that need to be had. And I think this is where you use entertainment to its advantage, you know? Absolutely. That's all. I'm not on Instagram, but I'm going to definitely kind of find, hack my way into it and see a little bit of on a, on a desktop. 
Those are great drops. Thank you for sharing them. And I want to thank both of you, you know, Usha and Pyle, for joining me again. We're in, we're in different geographies, different time zones, but we made it all happen and came together in this space to, to record. And I want to thank both of you for being on the deep dive with me. It was great. The conversation was great. Made us think of our work in different ways. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I really love interacting with you because, um, you really push us and, you know, take these uh, conversations beyond what we typically expect. And it was really, uh, now we need to write another book, thanks to you. <laughs> so. Absolutely. When the next book or the next volume comes out, I'm more than happy to have you back on the show. And, and you know, both of you were doing the heavy lifting, putting this together, being contributors, corralling all these contributors. I can't imagine that that is an easy task. So thank you again for your work and, and look forward to having you on again. Thank you. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.